Doctor, it's foul. Are you sure it's safe? Plenty of oxygen. But that awful smell. Mainly decaying food. And corpses. Welcome to the Cloisterbell Podcast. I am Rob, and I'm here with Liam this week again. Hi there. Hello. Uh, how are you doing? Not too bad. Um, I have been suffering from a bit of a flu, so that's the reason why my voice is sounding a bit weird. Sort of like a, a poor man's version of Richard Burton at the minute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, just re- so recovering from the flu. Um, but other than that, I, I am getting better, which is uh, which is obviously good. Um, but I think probably the best thing that's happened recently is I finally got paid because uh, because during the Christmas period we got paid earlier than we normally would have. So there's been a seven week gap uh, between getting paid for almost two months, which was getting really painful. So I finally got paid, thank goodness. So that was a relief. But yeah, yeah. Uh, other other than the flu, it's all good. How about you? All good. No, I've been fine. Um, just recovering from the two hour edit we did last week. Um, and had a 10 hour day to day so I'm a bit tired but oh blimey okay I'm fine <laughs> good to go hey you should do like an, a, an American accent for the intro because you got like a deep voice today <laughs> I would if I could do accents but I'm appalling no I was thinking of actually beginning the podcast with um, have you ever heard of Je- have you ever listened to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds um, no not, not, not probably no Oh well, the narration and the, and the journalist is done by Richard Burton, and I was tempting to try uh-huh. to try to see if I could do an impression of Richard Burton, but I think I'll be pushing it a bit. My <laughs> voice is just slightly deeper than normal. That's all yeah. it is. If anyone wants to get in touch and um, get Liam to do some impressions next week, I'm <laughs> all for that. <laughs> oh, oh, fantastic! This week we've been watching the two Doctors, uh, in keeping with. Um, the podcast we've been doing lately about multi-doctor stories mm-hmm. and The Two Doctors obviously is a Colin Baker story um, and it's the first one that we've been revisiting for this series of podcasts it's been a long time since I first watched it I've probably watched it a few times on DVD since I got it but um, I don't think I've seen it in the past 10 years possibly that may be the same for me I, can, I cannot for the life of me remember the last time I watched uh, watched The Two Doctors I remember getting on VHS and enjoying it and obviously got it on DVD now um, but to be honest I cannot for the life of me remember the last time I watched a Colin Baker story it's been quite a while yeah he's got so few stories I'm surprised I don't watch them more often yeah yeah that's true and um, I mean there's a, there's a lot to discuss in the Colin Baker era there's a lot to defend to defend, mm-hmm. there is some things to criticise. Uh, it has to be said. Uh, I think, unfortunately, um, but it, it is nonetheless a very interesting period. And uh, yeah, I think I, at some point, I think it would be quite nice if we were to look over the Colin Baker era as a whole. It's an interesting direction for his character. I mean, this episode in particular, this story in particular, mm-hmm. it's kind of goes against everything we think. The Doctor fundamentally stands for. 
with regards to um, kind of morals, especially near the end. Yeah, there's. Um, I mean, I would say it was a bit funny because I suppose when you when you're particularly used to something, mm-hmm. you kind of take it for granted. And uh, having having watched Doctor Who uh, and the classic era ever since you know we were children, you kind of just take things as they are and just accept them. But it has been a bit interesting coming to this story after quite a long gap. I mean, as you said, it, it may have been ten years since we last watched this, so it's effectively watching the story completely afresh mm-hmm. um and looking at it now i'm not t- I, to be honest i'm not entirely sure what i make of it it is it is very dark and it's mm. it's quite graphic and it's horror both in terms of its visuals and in the writing yeah perhaps it does go a bit over the top with its horror tones but i'm glad it did because it makes a more interesting story so one of the things that when we we didn't get uh, didn't get to mention it in the previous podcast, but when when I was doing the research for the five doctors, I came across quite a good a um, plot synopsis for the original idea. Uh, because mm. for those that don't know, Robert Holmes was originally approached to write the the five doctors, um, but for a number of reasons that fell through, and then Terence Dix later wrote it. Um, so Robert Holmes's original idea was to have uh, the Master work with the Cybermen who kidnap all the Doctors. And the Cybermen's plan was to operate to try and see what separates Time Lords from other species and then implant that into the cybernetic uh, machinery to become Cyber Lords. I just find that interesting because I think Robert Holmes went back to that original idea, this, uh, the, this notion that there is something that makes Time Lords biologically significant in their ability yeah. to time travel um, yeah, the, sy- the symbiosis yes and, and that's what we get in the two doctors mm-hmm. just one aside before before we start looking into the two doctors properly was um, because we've got two versions of the five doctors one is the original transmission and then the other is the special edition the special edition came about originally because uh, I've forgotten the chap's name, but he was there was the chap who was doing a lot of research, and he came across a lot of additional material that had been edited out of the two doctors. And the original plan was to actually have an, a, spe- a special edition of the two doctors. Mm. But when he, but when he discovered all this material and then was in planning stages to to get the ball rolling. Uh, all the additional material ended up being scrapped. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So that put pay to that idea, and then, and then, fa- then found that there was additional material for the five doctors. So put in safeguards to protect that material, and then kickstart the special edition of the five doctors. So I was so happy seeing um, Colin Baker opening titles because I haven't watched them in so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story kicks off. Um, with the second Doctor and Jamie, mm-hmm. which is quite cool to revisit. Um, I believe it's the Peter Davison console. Is that right? I think I'm so. Sure. I think it's the one that was last used in the King's Demons. Yeah. Um, but I do like the theory that you were talking about last week um, about how this this could possibly be set post war games uh, yes that's right there's this yeah. there's a th- it's called the season 6b theory which is the idea that the um, celestial intervention agency 
steps in after the second Doctor's trial and makes a deal with him, which is, if you um, if you effectively work for us, we will prolong your second incarnation. You can travel with um, Jamie and Victoria, have Jamie's memories reinstated, and you can you can live a lot longer. Um, and then eventually, after a certain time has passed, we will then have to, you know, um, reinstate the exile. So there's this idea that this this deal was was set, um, and so the, the idea, and that addresses certain continuity errors in the five doctors in this story. Uh, so the the idea is that this is set between season six and season seven. Yeah, I mean, there's some obvious. Um, continuity problems um, well one prominent one for me when I was younger was Patrick Crompton's hair <laughs> I was thinking why didn't they just dye it jet black <laughs> um, obviously Fraser Hines is noticeably older um, obviously I'm happy to overlook all this but I do like this theory how it ties all that together and in the start of episode one there's a scene where the second doctor is talking to this character, Destari. And um, Patrick Troughton says, well, I'm a bit of an exile these days. Uh, yes, yeah. Which also adds fuel to that theory. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it was implying that that was the case. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I think that. And of course, we've got um, Jacqueline Pierce in this story. Yeah, she plays Trissini. And it's, it's really nice because she's mainly known for playing um, Serverland in Blake 7. She played mm-hmm. that part spectacularly. She'd been in other things as well. She was in a movie in the late 80s called How to Get Ahead in Advertising, um, which also which actually stars Richard E. Grant. Um, ah. But yeah, she's uh, she plays Jacini here, and uh, she, she's a welcome addition. In fact, one of the things which I think is the strength of the two Doctors is its casting. I think mm-hmm. the entire cast are, are really rather good. I think that the standouts are Jacqueline Pierce, obviously, We've also got Lawrence Payne, who plays Dostari, and I think plays that part really well. I think it's quite nice as well. He'd previously appeared in Doctor Who in uh, the William Hartnell story, The Gunfighters, and the Tom Baker story, The Leisure Hive. But I thought it was quite nice because at this point in his career, he'd effectively retired and then came out Ah. of retirement to play this part as a favour to Peter Moffat, the director. Um, And I think he plays Dostari very well. I think, but for me, I think the real highlight is uh, John Stratton, who plays Shockeye. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really fantastic performance. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. Um, one of the strengths of this story is the cast, and of course, the locations, though, as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, the story's been augmenting the Andrigams, but um, the reason that the Doctor's been sent there is, of course, this um, Kartorima time travel. Yeah, um, and the story's frustrated because of the um, the hypocrisy of the Time Lords, but of course they have to intervene because the whole universe could um, be destroyed. could be wiped out. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with what Robert Holmes does with the Time Lords because really it was with Robert Holmes, it was with Robert Holmes as both as a, as a writer and a script editor for Doctor Who uh, during the Tom Baker era. He really introduces this this sense that the Time Lords are this incredibly powerful but very hypocritical race, and I think he adds a lot of of, of depth to uh, Time Lord culture as a result of that. And he really brings that in, into the two Doctors because there's this idea that these time travel experiments by Carter and Rhymer, um, 
may actually be dangerous. Mm. And it's it's explained later on that in many respects it's been used as a, as a way for the Time Lords to get someone involved so they can kidnap a Time Lord and get the um, oh, what's it called the nu- uh, the nuclei. Yes. Um, but there's this this there's this nice idea in episode one which is is it is it the town lords intervening because of a genuine concern or is it because they want a monopoly on time travel technology i think it's probably the latter possibly mm. mm-hmm. but it's um it's a nice idea and it sort of it, it keeps you it keeps you guessing as to as to the real motives mm-hmm. but of course the idea that um species like Androgums or the Santarans uh, to have time, tab- time travel technology is something that no one wants. So it may just be a case that um, this is something that works out, but the, the Time Lords are protecting their own interests more than anything. Oh, I love the scene um, when the Santaran battlecruisers are approaching with the music. I think the Santaran music is probably my favourite in this story. Yes, I totally agree with that. Peter Howell, uh, once again, um, provides the music because we were really um, rating the soundtrack he provides. Uh, he provided for the Five Doctors. He provi- here he provides his last soundtrack for Doctor Who in the Two Doctors. And yeah, once again, it's really, really good. And I love the Santaran theme. Uh, that 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 marching sound that he uh, that he uses. It's, it is very, very strong and very good, mm-hmm. and suits them very well. So after all this, we finally get to the Sixth Doctor and Perry, mm-hmm. and they're they're fishing, and he's got his uh, he's got his new umbrella. Yep. Um, misquotes Rassilon. Well, what's the use of a good quote if you can't change it? <laughs> I love that scene in the Five-ish Doctors. Yeah, I I always think of oh, when I was watching the two Doctors and that scene came up. It did make me think of the Five-ish Doctors, <laughs> uh, which was a nice moment between Sylvester McCoy and uh, Colin Baker, sort of both quoting their own stories. It was nice. it was funny. It was good. I, I like that. I don't want to recite it. I'll probably misquote it. So the second Doctor's fishing. His fishing. Um, is that any kind of analogy for the story? Do you think? Of course, um, the Andrigams kind of hunt for food and the doctor's hunting for fish but also for sport yeah i think um i think it's obvious from watching it this is uh, this is robert holmes because he was a vegetarian mm-hmm. so he was he'd created these um these alien creatures who just eat nothing uh, just constantly eat for pleasure and i think it is um i think it is doctor who exploring the theme of of pro vegetarianism if i can put it like that yeah. um so be, the story begins like that, but with, uh, with with the doctor fishing, and as you say, um, for, for for a meal, because he's talking, he he almost um, gets passionate about the disco- uh, He almost gets passionate, as Shockeye does later on in the story when he's talking about um, the cooking and eating of um, the fish, you know, clean skinned, pan pan fried in their own juices to yes. the golden brown. Uh, ambrosia steeped in nectar you know he's really sort of like drooling at the thought of uh, of of eating an animal yeah. and then later on you know Shokai is is pretty much that and then through everything at the end of the story we have the doctor saying it's a strict vegetarian diet for both of us yeah can I also point out that what you've just quoted of the doctor saying there mm. um, it could be because 
um, he's now part Andrigan in his past. That could have been kind of bleeding through early on. Oh, I never thought of that. You've got a good point, yeah. I, I mean, my personal take on it, there's nothing wrong with what you've suggested, that, that that could be a really good point. But my take of it is that is that is the Doctor as he is without the without the Androgum mm-hmm. um, side of himself coming out. Yeah. But yeah, I, n- I never thought of that. That's a good point. No, I just thought of it right now. Because, of course, later on he, he sees a cat and he's like, hmm... <laughs> I can't remember what he says. There's only one way ha, what, to, to cook one a cat. Way to or cook something. a cat, yeah. <laughs> in fact, there's a bit in the uh, the Target novelization where where because Robert Holmes wrote, uh, wrote the novelization for it as well. In fact, it's the only Target uh, book that he'd written, and um, this did make me laugh because <laughs> it's it's that scene. So he goes. They say there's more. What there's more than one way to skin a cat. The doctor said, but the sorry, it's it's really dark. But the best way is to chop its head, legs, and tail off. Then you simply strip its pelt back from the neck. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So the um, Robert Holmes really sort of relishes it. Um, in fact, that's one of the things as well about this uh, the story, which has always stood out for me, which is the way that it is written. There's a lot of horror contained in it. Yeah. But a Very... lot very descriptive when the Doctor and Perry arrive on the space station and he's describing the smell of death in the air. Yeah, heavy the decaying, the decaying corpses. Fruit, uh, fruit soft flesh peeling from white bones. Yeah, yeah it's, mm. it's, it's really graphic and disgusting. Yeah. There's, there's an awful... Yeah. Um, and I think Robert Holmes has always had a sense of the macabre, as you can see from, from other things that he's written. He's really, really relishing um, mm. the description here, and of course we forgot to mention um, the first meeting between Shockeye and uh, Jamie and the Doctor. Yes. When the Doctor grabs his cucumber, <laughs> Gra- grabs a cucumber. Sorry, let me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that out. <laughs> no, no, we'll keep it in. And of course, Shockeye's got this taste for Jamie. <laughs> I mean, that is the thing with the two Doctors. There's a lot of horror in it, but my God, there's a lot of humour in it as well. It's it's. Intentional, moment... intentional or not, it's there. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, there are moments when you don't know whether to laugh or just uh, or just be completely horrified. I think another good example of that is when you have uh, Oscar Botcherby, who I think is this absolutely brilliant character, this uh, mm. very theatrical and, and wants to be this amazing actor, but is, is currently in between roles, as he puts it, looking after a restaurant. And mm. he gets stabbed. I mean, because I was going to say, so, you know, whilst he's in his death throes, he's making jokes about uh, usually disgruntled uh, customers don't tip. <laughs> and it's it's this really strange dichotomy going on with, with the story. And yeah, he's introduced, as, as you said, as being someone who who gasses and um, uh, mounts moths. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense of um, basically killing of animals constantly running through the story in one form or another yeah and he talks about killing them more humanely with the cyanide rather rather than the gas yes um and that puts a bit of a contrast between the androgams and humans possibly Mm -hmm. yeah and because there is a moment when uh shock eye is uh is saying please 
um, please, I, th- I forgot who was talking about it, maybe Jamie, but uh, please, you know, d- d- don't gas, it leaves the flesh an acrid taste, I'll slaughter the beast myself. Oh yes, he's talking about the old lady. Oh yes, that's it, yes, yes, yes. You know, and even after all that, it's stab- It's established, it's, it's almost, it's in a throwaway line, so it's, uh, I only cottoned onto it, uh, on this watching of it, um, but it's 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 even said that he he ends up he's ate the old woman, um, saying you know had a dry, a dry and acrid taste and um, and then there's that scene with the rat. I mean, do, do you think? I mean, I think thematically, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting thing to look at. There was you may remember there was a Torchwood episode, which was sort of thematically the same thing, which was lo- looking at is it right to to kill animals for for food. Do you remember it? I think there's a there's a giant whale in a in, in a warehouse. Oh, this is the episode meat. Yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I for a moment I thought you were going to talk about countryside. Oh yes, that's another way because that talks that that one's about cannibalism. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, thematically, um, there's not there's nothing wrong with the Doctor Who story approaching this, but do you think it's a bit too graphic? Um. Yes, possibly. Because of course it's very graphic just the description of stuff like we're talking about the sixth doctor on the space station describing the um, smell of death in the air mm-hmm. but then we've got um visually graphic stuff like um the Santoran dying and then we've got a severed leg and then obviously oscar is killed so i think it could have got a a lighter balance of horror in the story possibly yeah i mean it was as as we said before, you know this is a story that I've watched. I think I think it came out on VHS in nineteen ninety five. So this is a story that I've been aware of since then. So when I was a kid, and this never bothered me. It was just an exciting Doctor Who adventure uh, to watch. But now watching it a lot older, so in, in my early thirties now, it's really odd. Some of these things, particularly the stabbing of Oscar, I, I did make me feel a little bit uneasy. I mean, in some respects, it is handled quite well, and it, it it sort of fits the tone of the story. But then it did. I w- I wasn't sure whether this was the, if this was right for Doctor Who because someone has been murdered, yeah, and we see it, and it's it's stabbed, and and there is blood. It, it you know, there's nothing covered up about that. Yeah. It's like we've got. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it near the end, but we've got Shock Eye's death at the end. Yeah. Which is. Which is essentially murder. And even that's a striking scene. So in contrast with the with Oscar's death, um, it's a lot stronger, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and when the Centaurans arrive on the space station, what happened to Destori? Did did he just fake being poisoned? You know, that's never occurred to me. But um, thinking about it, maybe it should have. Maybe it was a way of... Oh, that's a bit of a funny one. Do you think that's a plot hole? I wonder. I didn't put too much thought into it. I just thought, oh, Liam will know. <laughs> um, no, but funny enough, it's, it's never occurred to me. Unless it was, we'll drug you. So yeah. it goes with appearances. Because maybe the Santarans were just told, murder everything that's just moving around. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, that's a bit of a funny one. I've never That's never occurred to me. That's a good point. It may possibly be a plot hole. I'm not mm. sure yet. Although, if um, the story needs to put on an act um, for the Doctor because he's going to report back to the Time Lords, maybe 
somehow he needed the doctor to witness that the Santorans were arriving and he was dying for whatever reason. Yes. Mm. Yeah, to to match the uh, to match the uh, the framing of the Time Lords. Yeah. Yeah, I yes. suppose that makes yes, that makes sense. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the scene where um, he calls Jamie the hairy legs Highlander. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's great to see Patrick Troughton and uh, Fraser Hines back in the show, and I mm. think one of the amazing things is they they must have had a great time playing those roles back in the 60s because they just they go back into playing it so effortless, effortlessly mm-hmm. yeah I, I can't get that word out anyway you know what I mean it, it seems so simple they're just they're back into playing those roles mm-hmm. and it's such a delight to watch it's it's really really good and they've aged so well at this point not to a point where it distracts you but uh-huh. I don't know you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's still them and the 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 don't um, the performance doesn't lack because time's gone on. Yes. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Mm. So um, obviously, Shockeye wants to visit Earth, and um, Shasini um, obviously indulges him in this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come across so much early on, but obviously, she is quite conflicted inside with the Androgram part of her. Yeah, there, there is that sense of sort of um, there is that conflict between being a, an intelligent uh, being, but those animal animal instincts of her own uh, heritage. I think that's um, I think the most obvious scene is when uh, she comes across the pool of the Doctor's blood, yeah, and, the, and she's fighting the sort of the, the natural urge, but then she you know sort of like she, she collapses on the floor and smears it all over her face, yeah. And, then and just, that's, that's and, also an important scene for Distori, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like she's using Shockeye as a conduit for all her, all her kind of androgram impulses. Yes, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. So, of course, um, the Sixth Doctor and Perry have arrived on the station. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it just a massive coincidence that when Perry suggests that the Doctor should see a Doctor... He gets out all his business cards, um, and he gets to Dostari. Mm-hmm. Is that just a massive coincidence? I think this is one of the. I think this is one of the occasions when a story like this, um, when you've set up a story, which isn't a celebratory story, as we've seen with the three Doctors and the five Doctors, and you you kind of you've got to explain the reason why one Doctor will meet another. Mm-hmm. Um, when the series doesn't tend to do that, usually, uh, you kind of have to explain that contrivance. There'll all, I think, there'll always be a moment when, when um, the story has to deal with that. And I think actually, it's it's quite good how the three doctors and the five doctors explain that. Um, usually through this 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 major crisis. Yes, it is a coincidence that the sixth doctor decides to see Dastari. Uh, at the same time that his second self has seen him, yeah, I think it's handled quite well considering. But yeah, it is a plot contrivance, and there's no way of getting away from it. But I think, I think the story, you know, it it sort of it it deals with it as uh, the earliest opportunity, and then sort of like right, this is it, and then we'll just quickly move on. Yeah. 
but yeah, it is it is a bit of it is a plot contrivance, and I don't think there's any way of getting away from that. Um, and when they're on the station, Perry suggests that the Time Lords might have massacred the station. Um, and of course, the Doctor is quite insistent that they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, she's um, smart enough to suggest that perhaps the Time Lords may have been set up. Yes, and I think it's interesting that it's, it's Perry who, who comes up with the suggestion because the feeling that I get from the Doctor is that when... Uh, the feeling that I get from the Doctor is that he, he's trying to convince himself that maybe the Time Lords didn't do this rather than being wholly convinced. Mm. But it, it's Perry who suggests, well, maybe the whole thing's a setup, And then something clicks and he, uh, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah okay, that, that makes much more sense. Yeah. But he... He's sort of initially battling with it, with that idea because I think as far as he's concerned, there's a possibility that it may be true that the Time Lords are involved. Yeah. Which probably goes to show as much as he knows about the Time Lords um, to what lengths they'd go to stop it, um, others from using time travel. Yes, and although the makers of the show wouldn't have known this at the time, and we are jumping ahead here, I think it's interesting that is a that is a major plot point in the trial of a time lord. You know that the whole thing of of the sleepers who d- turned out they've been um, stealing time lord information from the matrix, and then the time lords do this this thing where they're even risking to destroy the entire planet and people, in this case Earth, mm-hmm. and drag it halfway across the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So as I say, even though that the makers of the show wouldn't have had the trial of a time lord in mind at, at the point that the two doctors was being broadcast or made um it's interesting that it's a sort of thematic point in the colin baker era oh um back in seville the the blind old lady's kind of praying and mm-hmm. then she, then she meets shock eye and she points out that he's english yeah of course so is everyone else in the doctor who universe so maybe um, you could raise this point about every episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you could. It is one of those things of going, um, maybe it's just a massive coincidence that they, they, they speak something which is, is very familiar to English. Or they are speaking to English because um, it becomes, it's it's a universal language. <laughs> it must maybe it is a universal language because nine times out of ten the telepathic circuit can't be used as an excuse. <laughs> no. Just as a complete aside, um, I used to work at um, Newcastle University in the medical school. It was at, uh, it was as an administrator, but it was to do with uh, medical research. And it was interesting. Um, the, the'd been, this wasn't something that I'd been involved with, but there'd, um, there'd been a major press conference at, uh, in Iceland um, where a lot of people went. And it was a major uh, press release for some major um, project that was about to take place. And everyone was very frustrated when the announcement wasn't made in English. Um, and that was right across the board because we had uh, there were people from other European countries, um, 
I think there may have been s- someone from Southeast Asia. I can't quite remember. But uh, there, were, there, were, there were a lot of people from non-English speaking countries. But the fact that the, the statement wasn't made in English irritated everyone because apparently there's this recognition within the scientific community that English is the universal language. So if you want to put something out and have as much coverage as possible, um, so every everyone has access to it, you publish you publish it in English, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Why can't everyone just use Esperanto? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, I think because yeah, because that was a language that was designed to be uh, simple to learn. But I think there's only. There's only like a hundred odd speakers in the whole world or something daft like that. Yeah, yeah, there's not that many. <laughs> All that time and effort into make such a language and no one bothers. <laughs> when was it created? Hmm. I'm going to say the 70s. I think that's a good call. Hang on. Oh, no. Apparently, it was created, it was devised in 1887. Wow, and it still hasn't caught on. Yeah, if it hasn't caught on now, I don't think it will. Yeah, well it might because if you've seen Red Dwarf, all the signs around the ship are in Esperanto. Ah, alright, so, okay. So it will catch on eventually, in the future. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it will. I mean it may do, because I think it has entered the education system in certain countries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's part of the education system in China and a couple of others. So yeah, it may do. Yeah. Time will tell. Always does. Oh, the amount of times yeah. I always drop that into a conversation. It's amazing. So we finally got the Santoran arrives in Seville. Mm-hmm. Um, was he played by Jason Statham? I'd be very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> if if you listen to his voice, it does sound like Jason Statham. No, sadly not. It's um, oh, you know, I was so sure. Stike is played by Clinton, uh, a chap called Clinton Green, and Val is played by a, t- a chap called Tim Raynham. Ah, right, okay. I want Jason, St- uh, Jason Statham in a Doctor Who story. It needs to happen now. As a Santoran. Or as the next Doctor. So, Chasini's obviously got some kind of telepathy. Is that because she's an augment, or is that the Andrigan? No, um, I think that's because she's uh, augmented and because the, she's managed to raise herself onto a much higher plane um, mm. with each augmentation that's happened. She's now, she's, now at a, she's now at a stage where she's able to mentally glean information from others. Mm. So Val sees the um, battlecruisers approaching. Um, Shockeye is underwhelmed with a watermelon. <laughs> yeah. Totally understandable. I'm with Shokai on that one. So, do you have any nice food in Seville? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to. I'm just visualizing you walking around like Patrick Troughton with massive eyebrows in the top hat. <laughs> <laughs> trying out all the restaurants. I mean, there there are an awful lot of restaurants in Seville. And yeah, there were, there were some uh, very nice uh, places uh, to go. I mean, you had the the obvious thing, um, you know, places to eat paella and things like that. But funny enough, because um, I think the first day we went in Seville, um, which was November last year, um, 
Actually, it was it was the, the eating the paella. What wasn't the best meal we had there? There was lots of really nice uh, uh. seafood dishes, and uh, yeah, there was a vast variety. I mean, one 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 nice thing of watching episode three of of the two doctors was seeing uh, those brief moments when they are in Seville. Yeah. Because um, I mean, when they first arrive, it's right next to the uh, the Cathedral of Seville, which is which is a major tourist spot. In fact, our hotel wasn't that far from around the corner. So I recognised exactly where they were. That was quite nice. There were one or two streets, which I'm sure I probably walked down at some point because it's all in the Santa Cruz area by the looks of it. Um, so it was it was quite nice to to watch the two doctors now as sort of a trip down memory lane. Um, because even though this was filmed in 1985... Uh, as you can imagine, the sort of the areas they were filming haven't haven't really changed that much, um, no. but yeah, that, that that was that was quite nice to to see. That's but yeah, there's cool. but yeah, the, the, there's lots of restaurants. And in fact, one of the things that I did like about the two doctors is that moment when uh, you got the the second doctor in Shokai becoming quite pally and <laughs> getting really excited about. But I mean, I thought that was genuinely funny, and I liked that. And I was just thinking, ah. Oh, there's a spin-off here that needs to happen. <laughs> it's one thing in the story I never saw coming. It's just this funny moment when they just they just go out for something to eat. Well, it seems it it comes completely out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> that thing where Jacini suddenly went. I've had this backup idea. Uh, can't we get the Doctor and make him an androgram? It's like where's that? What? Where's that come from? Uh, I mean, it's a great idea, and it's. I'm so pleased they did it, but it just seemed to complete sort of like apropos of nothing. It's like, where's that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, are... what was it all for? Yeah, uh, I mean, the, uh, I think she said that she wants to, to make the Doctor a consort for her. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the idea that you will get androgums in the future who will who will have the nuclei that a Time Lord has. So androgums have the ability to travel in time. Mm-hmm naturally yeah um but in terms of the story that seems to come completely out of nowhere and in some respects i think it's the same where chasini decides that she has no further use of the santarans Mm -hmm. to the point where it almost feels like well what was the point of the santarans in the first place i know it's explained that um they were there to attack the space station yeah but surely they could have thought of another way. I mean, in some respects, the Santarans do feel a bit superfluous to the story. Yeah. Although having them in there fits quite well. Oh, yes, don't get me wrong. I'm pleased that they are in the story. And in terms of how they're written for, in their dialogue and, and so on, is actually really quite nice. But I don't think they're woven into the narrative as much as they could have been. No, no. And even though they're Robert Holmes's creation... Mm-hmm. um. I don't think he was particularly keen on write, writing them into the story in the first place. It was something that John Nathan Turner wanted him to do. Oh, okay. So then um, the second Doctor arrives um, on the Suntaran battle cruiser with Stike. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we've got Oscar, the moth hunter. Yeah. Clearly a bit of a ladies' man. Um he nearly gets his head taken off by the Suntaran Battle Cruiser. You're making this sound a lot more epic than what appears on screen, but yeah. <laughs> and then back in the service corridors we've got 
the six doctor and perry um and the doctor conveniently lands on some wires but i think they should have saved that reveal for episode two also just complete uh he seems to collapse out of shot yeah Yeah. free falls even have a bad continuity thing where he he falls about 10 feet at the end of part one but then in part two he lands on some wires a meter down (laughs) also have a cop out cliffhanger yeah. I suppose it would have worked a bit. Yeah, see what you're... I think that would have worked. I agree with you on that one. I think yeah. the direction's a bit uh, strange with this one because, it, once again, Peter Moffat returns. Um, and this is the last Doctor Who story he directs. And we sort of said this in the last podcast when we are talking about The Five Doctors because he directed that one as well. He's not the most dynamic director that the show's ever had. I mean, he did direct State of Decay and does a good job with that and um, A Mordron Undead. But here, I think on occasion the direction's quite functional and flat. Yeah. Certainly with the a lot of the studio work, particularly in the first episode, this, all the location filming, I think, is handled very well. Mm. Um, and is filmed and edited in an engaging way, and I think it, I think it works. But particularly in the first episode, I think the studio stuff's quite flat mm. and a bit and a bit functional, and I suppose what you've just said about about the the episode cliffhanger that could have that could have that could have worked a bit better and that is a simple a simple but effective way of dealing with it yeah and again the stuff in the service corridors i feel like that's something that didn't translate well from script to screen because it's 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 uh, it's implied that it's um, really it's meant to be really cramped and dark because the sixth doctor bumps his head and then Obviously, some something attacks Perry, and she thinks it's an it's an animal, but it turns mm-hmm. out to be Jamie. Yeah. But it's visibly lit as a as a man. You know what I mean? Yes. So maybe the um, the directing of that w- was a bit poor. Yeah, I mean, I suppose respect. it's 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 one of those things where um, you've got the limit the limitation of the size of the studio and the particular set, but. He, so I suppose if you were feeling a bit generous of going, well, they did the best they could. But even so, there's one moment when the camera is panning around from where, from one side of the set to where the Doctor and Perry are. And I can see what they're trying to do, but you can clearly see that is a, that is a camera which is supposed to be in amongst all the... Um, all the workings that you see and sort of moving around, but you can tell it's a camera that's actually on the on the edge of the set. Ah, it just, right. it, me personally, I mean, I suppose we're really nitpicking here, but I just think with, with a couple of moments like that, if you tighten the shot up, um, so it's just a little bit tighter, a bit more sort of like zoomed in, and it, the, the shot could have been sold a bit more. There's just a couple of moments like that where... Because again, it was it was one of those things when we're talking about the five doctors, where Peter Moffat does a perfectly reasonable job, um, and there are moments which are actually directed quite well, but there are one or two moments uh, which do feel a bit lacking in the directing department. And again, it's the, that occasion here. There there are some beautiful shots in the two doctors, but there are one or two moments where it just feels a bit sloppy. Mm-hmm. I think most of the problems in that regard are in the first episode, and then the rest are perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. 
<clears throat> but yeah, in in contrast to the studio stuff and the location stuff, there's a big difference. Yeah. I like the scene with the Doctor and Perry when they've come out of the service, service corridors and um, obviously the Doctor's interfacing with a computer and he's like, no speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but he does come to the conclusion that um, perhaps Troughton did, uh, the second Doctor did die. Mm. Yeah, because you've got the, the, uh, the supposed recorded footage of uh, the Doctor and a story being killed. It's mm. only through a, a cock-up, through a mistake where they, they left the animator on so that the, the sixth Doctor and Perry have been incorporated into the recording, which then g- gives the game away that the whole thing is is actually a setup. Mm-hmm. So I thought I thought that that realization was handled really well. I liked that moment. And then uh, then Jamie enters, um, and he's explaining um, that the second that he is his doctor. Uh-huh. He's just who, but that's just who he is now. And Jamie's like, "Who will I be?" <laughs> he still doesn't. He still doesn't grasp what's going on. No, no. I mean, J- Jamie wasn't always the the sort of the sharpest knife in the drawer. He was a bit dim on occasion. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that that was a, that was a good funny line. The doctor, the sick doctor's a bit exasperated by it and just sort of like ignores the question and then just goes, "Perry, look at this." And it's her being tortured. It's just like, oh, that's horrible. Switch it off. Um, but yeah, yeah. And then after this, the sixth doctor. Um, uses t- um, telepathy, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, um, this it's not on the same. It's not the same style as the five doctors and the three doctors. Yeah. Because, um, he's not making making physical contact, but he's um, he's kind of doing this astral telepathy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I like the moment in um. When he comes, he comes to the realization that the um, roughly where the doctor is, but he hasn't sort of like pinpointed it completely. So there's just <laughs> that wonderful line, which is about something about getting my hair cut, which is just this subtle reference to the barber of Seville, um, which 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 always makes me chuckle. I like that. I wonder <laughs> if that was in the original script or if that was a Colin Baker ad lib. I'm not sure. Oh, I wonder. Yeah. And of course, he wakes up going boing, 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 boing. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit irritating, I've got to say. <laughs> What's interesting in the novelization, though, is that uh, what Robert Holmes does is to give a sense of, of more danger because the Doctor explains, you know, um, you know, d- d- don't come anywhere near me because you know, it may sever the astral link and kill me. Mm-hmm. So um, what Robert Holmes does in the novelization is he makes one of the computers in that room explode and then starts in a fire. So there's this mad panic of trying to get the, the Doctor out of the room without disturbing his um, telepathy. Oh, right. Okay. I thought it was, a, I thought it was an interesting change. Um, so after this, the Sixth Doctor arrives in Seville, mm-hmm. um, and Oscar thinks he's the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love um, how he says, you must, you must be the plain clothes branch. Have you seen what they're wearing? <laughs> <laughs> I do like that he comes out coatless, gives him a new look. It's so much better. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to have worn that coat in the in the, in the blazing heat of <laughs> of southern Spain. No. <laughs> um, so it's a practical thing, but yeah, the it's it's amazing how 
have so much all what it is is he's effectively wearing the same clothes but he's taking the coat off it's a different uh, type of waistcoat which again is colourful mm-hmm. but it looks a bit more summery and it sort of suits the location that they're in mm-hmm. it, it does look it is a much better look for the sixth doctor and it works and yeah. you're able to take him a lot more seriously yeah um, with regards to the Doctor and clothes, do you think the show would work with having the Doctor having new clothes every episode? Because it would just take it for granted that the Doctor has only worn eight outfits in the past 80 years, give or take, well, <laughs> a few more. But it it's a bit um, it's a bit strange when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of in terms of classic Doctor Who. Uh, William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton pretty much had the same thing for their entire tenure. Um, when John Pertwee and Tom Baker were playing the Doctor, there was some sort of variance mm-hmm. uh, in pretty much every story. Um, but there would, the, you know, so but there would always be something that was similar. So John Pertwee always had the full-fronted shirts and the velvet jacket, but the design and the color would always change. Yeah. Tom Baker always had, you know, so. Uh, some sort of frock coat with with a massive scarf, but there was always some variation of it. It did become a lot more uniformed when John Nathan Turner was producer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could say it was, that's going back to how it was like with William Hartnell and Patrick yeah. Troughton. The difference being is, as opposed with Hartnell and Troughton's Doctor, they were wearing clothes that you could see someone could easily get their, their, their hands on. Yeah. Whereas with Davis and Colin Baker and McCoy's clothes they're all a lot more designed Mm. it perhaps made more sense for the first two doctors having the same clothes because they were going from one story to the next and it was never really grounded until obviously spearhead onwards he'd have the opportunity to just slow down and change his clothes oh that's true yeah yeah another interesting theory from perry is that the time lords use symbiosis and then uh, I think there's a scene where Distori speculates that as well. Yeah, and because the, uh, the second Doctor just you know says how that's guesswork, but it was apparently Jacini because she is much more intelligent now. Okay. Th- through the operations, uh, you know, to explain that it was Jacini who guessed that the final element to have fully stable uh, time travel must lie somewhere within the the genetic makeup of a time lord. I like the scene where the um, the second Doctor tries to provoke Stake to challenge him. And, of course, Stake just slaps him across the face. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he refuses the um, challenge, doesn't he? And there was always a, a moment where I thought he was going to set him loose and the Doctor would run away. Yeah, and that, that, that was a good scene. And obviously that's the Doctor's intention, to, to wind up the Sontaran as much as possible, to hopefully allow him... An opportunity to escape. Yeah, and th- 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 that was a good moment. Um, but I, but I like the the doctor's uh, <laughs> the doctor's reaction when it clearly hasn't worked. Oh, there's another moment about Shockeye. Um, you know he can speak English because it's this universal language. Apparently, um, <laughs> yeah. he can also read Chinese and Spanish. Yeah. He's not stupid. I mean, yeah, because that, that's always been a moment which, uh, even from a very young age, I always thought, well, how is he able to, to, to read those languages? But we'll take that by the by. But again, because that's, that's another scene where he's basically talking about uh, about um, farming methods. 
So mm-hmm. you know, force feeding animals, so you get things like foie gras and uh, and then um, battery farming as well. Mm-hmm. So 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 again, that, that that's a little scene, but it emphasises the, the the theme that Robert Holmes was was implanting into the story. Yeah, I don't think I understood the extent of this theme until now, especially with the um, the fishing scene at the beginning, which yeah. I've, I've only just realised it was connected. Because I read somewhere as well that apparently uh, Nicola Bryant is also a vegetarian. So when she was writing the script, she was in a um, she was in a lot of contact with Robert Holmes, and they were sort of. I think she really enjoyed the um, the theme of the story because you know she's a vegetarian and she she enjoyed the show exploring it as a theme. Oh, and um, the second Doctor has a bit of a close call. With a story, because he's about to um, start operating on him. Mm-hmm. And he's about to start cutting him up before Perry shouts. Yes, yeah, that was a close call. I mean, that's quite a tense scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you have got this 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 mini electric uh, saw, and it does come very very close to Patrick Troutman's head. And given, <laughs> and given how bloody the story's been so far, <laughs> there is this horrible moment of going, "Where's where's this gonna go?" Because the this is a story which doesn't shirk from its violence. I mean, the examples we've used before, um, and there's also there's a there's a moment in episode one when Perry picks up some clo- um some clothes which are dripping in fresh blood. Um, so yeah, I thought that scene was uh, was very tense, and I think on first viewing, uh, I mean I may be wrong about this, but I think on first viewing p- people may uh, may suspect that um, that there is a possibility that it. At the very least, it could have nicked the skin. Yeah, and then there's a similar scene with Shockeye and Jamie, when he's um, he's he's Jamie's being tenderized, <laughs> and then he nearly gets cut up before yeah. Shockeye is pulled away. But it's weird; it's like he's being electronically tenderized. Yeah, and again, that sort of goes in because when the story comes in and goes, "What you're doing? This is clearly very painful," and then. Um, and then Shockeye goes, you know, I've been a butcher all my life. Um, animals don't feel pain in the same way that we do. Yeah. Which is an argument, I, I don't think it is now, because I think a lot of people recognise it as a nonsense, but it was certainly an argument used back then, which was um, animals don't feel pain in the same way that we do, so we can we can slaughter them pretty much any way that we want in order well, to eat them. me as a vegetarian, I've found that people still have that view. That ah. the the um because I have conversations with people every day mm-hmm. about vegetarianism and um surprisingly a lot of people still kind of think as animals as lesser things in that sense and they do, they don't feel things the same way right okay um obviously not everyone thinks that but some people I think they're a little bit narrow minded when it comes to that. I mean, it is interesting. You know, I think that we do we do need to. I mean, regardless of which side of the debate you are, I think I think most people should recognise the need that you know certain things need to change. I mean, battery farming I think is totally unacceptable, mm-hmm. and I think force feeding of animals for the for the likes of foie gras I think is absolutely disgusting, um, and I think the slaughtering of animals. I mean, I can understand it from a nutritional point of view. I mean, because the thing is. Um, I mean, yes, you're clearly able to get nutrients from a vegetarian or even a vegan diet, but in in comparison, it's not as easy um, because the human digestive system is um, is perhaps not the most efficient. We do the body does seem to um, 
get most of its nutrients needed from from a diet that that does involve eating of animals. I'm not saying it's impossible to, to have a vegetarian diet. I just mean in terms of getting the one's nutrients, a, a lot more is perhaps involved. Um, but mindless slaughter and putting animals through as much pain as possible. I th- uh, even uh, even as someone is eat meat, uh, eats meat, I think is ridiculous. There has to be um, kinder ways of doing it. Mm. It is something that that clearly needs fast improvement yeah i mean i mean because you're a vegetarian you may say that this is a contradiction in terms but i think you you, i me personally i think you can eat animals but still be mindful of the welfare i always go for free range eggs Mm. Uh, and i remember being in uh in a supermarket uh and i picked the free range eggs and the the, the, uh there was a woman there and she was oh she wasn't being judgmental she was just being friendly she just went Oh, um, you can actually get cheaper eggs. You're, you're paying a bit more just because it's free range. I know. Yeah. I know what I explained was. Oh, I prefer getting free range eggs, and explained. I explained the reasons why and what free range was, and she went, and it was. It was as if it was sort of like a light bulb clicked, and it was just like, oh, I never knew that, and. And then she actually made a point of getting the free range eggs herself. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had a very similar conversation with an old lady in a shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I was getting free range eggs, and she, and this other lady had um, just had some battery farm eggs, <laughs> and she said, "No, these ones taste just as nice." And she didn't. She perhaps didn't realise why I was buying them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. I didn't get them because I wanted nicer tasting eggs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it's. Um... I mean, things are changing, and I think people are becoming a lot more clued up through food. And I think that's because over the years, culinary tastes uh, have changed. And with certain cooking and food programs, I think people are being a lot more clued up. Um, and there is a lot more variety going on. And I think as time goes on, people are becoming a lot are becoming a lot more. Um, a lot more knowledgeable about food and where it comes from. There's still a long way to go. Yeah, and I know. Um, obviously, we've just had like a big vegan January with a lot of the super retailers and supermarkets, mm-hmm. um, and restaurants and things, and a lot of the incentive for people to go meat free um, is for health reasons mm-hmm. rather than for moral reasons. But I think perhaps that's probably a more healthy mindset for people. Yeah, I think I think because one of the things is is that um, I think certain people have been put off because there is a sort of a militant wing, if I can put it like that, of vegetarians and vegans who who are obviously very passionate. I can totally understand it from their point of view, but the way in which they wish to convey what they think is the right thing by effectively shouting in people's faces yeah. isn't go isn't isn't going to help and isn't helping. Um, You'll always have some people, regardless of of whatever it is that you're talking about, who just don't wish to know. But you're more likely to engage people um, much more effectively if you just have a normal conversation about it. And actually, you know, you raised a point because, you know, people do people are trying to be much more health conscious. Um, if you extol the the virtues of, of of healthy eating that's probably one way of getting your message across and probably much more effective mm-hmm. than trying to shame people yeah i would definitely never go out to someone and just preach about not eating meat and um i would never i would certainly never 
judge anyone on what they're eating, mm-hmm. which is a lot of people. What a lot of people seem to do. But I agree with your point that you said earlier, which was about the um, the virtues. I think of, of traditional farming. I think certainly in terms of animal welfare, traditional farming is is a, is a lot better for that, and and battery farming is absolutely is absolutely appalling. Yeah, and traditional farming is obviously a lot more sustainable. So we've got this scene with Distari and the Santaran steak, um, and Stike um, is quite pressed for time because he should be on his way to a battle right now. Uh-huh. But this is where we see his greed for time travel. He kind of reprioritizes what he needs to do in order to um, kind of play everyone and get control of the um, technology. So with that in mind, do you think Santorans in general kind of feel inferior? Um, no, I don't think so. I think they were, I think the way that it's explained here is that they thought that having time travel, time travel technology would give them a tactical advantage, mm-hmm. um, because they're very, they're very military, militaristic, um, I know, always thinking along those lines. And it's, it's interesting because he see, he says that he's wondering if he's made a tactical a tactical error mm-hmm. in stopping his progress in, in, in reaching the battle in order to obtain time travel technology rather, you know, maybe he should, you know, the, the, he's sort of questioning himself of maybe he should head straight over to um, the front lines or not. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they feel that they're inferior. No. Um, and in fact, later on when, uh, when he's threatening Jamie and then the doctor says, that's why you Santorans don't have any allies who can't be trusted. And he says, well, we don't, uh, what was it? Uh, Santorans don't need of our allies. Santoran might is invincible, I think. Ah, oh, right, okay. I do remember in um, the Poison Sky and the Santoran stratagem, the Santorans were quite frustrated for not being allowed to participate in the Time War. Ah, uh, right, okay, I forgot about that. I think that's, uh, I think that's because they're, they're, they're constantly battle-hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, and they always want to have they always want to be involved in the battle of some sort, regardless of what it is. Yeah, that makes sense. And the time war is, by the sounds of it, the biggest war there's ever been. And so, for the from from a Saturn's point of view, not to be involved, I think you know it's like, oh, it's a shame. And shortly after this, it's where the Saturn's plan to just rejoin the battle, mm-hmm. um, and blow up one of their ships. And that was obviously a real explosion on set, on location rather. Yeah, yeah. So that was a cool scene. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was reading the uh, production uh, subtitles when I was uh, when I was rewatching the story, and the st- uh, the explosion was a lot larger than was expected. Mm-hmm. Where some poor um, neighbor nearby come rushing out, thinking it was Basque separatists. Uh, apparently screaming ahead off that it was Basque separatists who were uh, uh, <laughs> setting off explosions explosions around the region and apparently was was calmed down and uh, consoled by a couple of bottles of alcohol of some sort apparently. <laughs> it was just Santarans. <laughs> it was just Santarans, nothing to worry about. <laughs> so I love the moment when we get the reveal of the second doctor as an Andrigum. Mm-hmm. I love his I love his performance there when he wakes up. 
Oh yeah, that is really really good, and just you know the, the I mean, um, John Stratton and Patrick Troughton, uh, both the, the way that they both interact uh, during those moments, I think, are, are really really delightful. And we oh. didn't get enough of them. No, to, to be honest, I would have I would have preferred um, a bit more of that interaction because I think it was it was it was really wonderfully written. There was a lot of wit, and just seeing the, uh, those two perform. And interact in that way was an absolute delight. Uh, as I said before, there was a there's a spin-off there which uh, which should have been done. I would have loved to have seen the second <laughs> Doctor and uh, Shokai just going around the restaurants of Europe and just stuffing their faces <laughs> with absolute delight. And of course, just as the Santarans are double cross and Distari, yeah. um, the Santarans are double crossed, aren't they? Yes, yeah. And which of the Santarans survives? Is it is it Stike? Yes, I think it is, yeah. It's hard to tell at this stage. No, no, I, th- I think it is, because I think uh, Val is the one who gets the full force of uh, the chronic acid and then dies. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Because Stike is the, is the group marshal. He's the most senior, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, I J- think he's the one who survived. So Jason Statham dies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And obviously, Stake surviving is quite graphic. Uh huh. Yeah, you get a you do get a real sense of um, the horror and the pain of of what he's gone through. Yeah. And again, there's the sort of that macabre, dark joke. I mean, again, it's one of those things where I don't know whether to laugh or not. Where all what survives is one severed leg. <laughs> and then you've got Shockeye who's just been carrying it around, and they're just going, "That's all of that's all survived of him." <laughs> he could have just said it. Yeah. He didn't need to but, bring the leg. No, no, he didn't. But you know, there it is, and all its <laughs> severed green glory. When the doctor and Shockeye steal the van, did they kill the driver? Because they just kind of knock him out, but then it's implied they've killed him. Yeah, because I mean, again, if you read the novelization, what Shockeye does in the, uh, in the novelization of it, he snaps the poor guy's neck, okay. and is clearly dead. Yeah, I think on this because initially I I've always thought that uh, Jamie's reaction was a bit OTT because to me it just seems like um, the poor driver was knocked unconscious, but yeah, it is it is heavily implied that the knock killed him. And who killed him? Was it Shockeye? Uh, yes, it was Shockeye. Yeah. Ah, okay. Because the doctor's the one who gets the the driver to stop the uh, the van. And then Shockeye creeps up behind him and whacks him from behind with a um with a stick or something. Yeah. I mean quite a thick big stick, but yeah, hitting him with a <laughs> stick, yeah. And then of all the restaurants and all of Seville, they go into Oscars. Yeah, another coincidence. But I quite like it. Uh, it it sort of brings them back into the pot. Yes, it is a coincidence, but again it's one of those things which are which is handled in quite an amusing way, where they're just, you know, stuffing their faces, and the fact that Oscar and uh, Anita are, are, you know, are basically going through the entire order of everything that they've eaten, and they've managed to run up a bill of 81,600 pesetas, and then Oscar's going, and they're still eating! And then you just cut to them continuing eating. (laughs) (laughs) I do find that scene quite funny. I suppose it's it's one of those reasons again why when Shockeye stabs Oscar, 
it it does feel like one of those moments where I think it's maybe a bit much for a show like Doctor Who to to contain something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the story's been littered with this very bleak, dark humor throughout. And again, as I said, when um, earlier, you know, he's been stabbed, and then Oscar's making jokes about how disgruntled uh, customers don't usually tip. Yeah. Um, but I think. I think, given that there was this moment, which I think was, which was funny, just of 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 simple joyous humor of seeing these two characters just eat, uh, just enjoying food at such a uh, comedic extent. Yeah. I think it would have been nice had it just be, had it just been left to that and say that um, Shock Eye just does a runner. Yeah, well, he even tries to honor the bill. He gives him a twenty nag note. <laughs> I know it's an acceptable in all the nine galaxies. I mean, what more did Oscar want? Jeez. <laughs> and then what caused the second doctor to turn back to normal was it just the fact that he didn't continue his treatment uh, yes because I think uh, I think the story explains that he needs to transfer the, the first operation is what's gone through and then there's a second stage which uh, which is to make sure that the doctor doesn't reject the tissue mm-hmm. but because because the second operation hasn't happened within a particular time frame then naturally the, the, the doctor just rejects the androgum DNA and then just reverts back to normal. Got you. All the Rice Krispies go in his eyebrows. Yeah, all that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the um, doctors end up tied up in the basement later on. Uh-huh. Um, and the story conveniently leaves the key on the table. Um, was that intentional at this point? I think it's probably one of those cases where um, the two doctors and Perry needed to be tied up. But we're nearing the end of the story, so there has to be some sort of way in order for them to easily get out of it. Yeah. So I think I think it's handled reasonably well, given the amount of time that's left in the story. Because I think Dastori leaves the key on the table, and he does it in a sort of in a sort of mocking way, thinking they wouldn't be able to get it. Yeah. Um. But there is a part of me that thinks that maybe it was a bit lazy writing, but nonetheless, it works. No. But I like how they use the wheelchair to get the key. Yes, yeah, yeah. To me, this is the strength of the Doctor that I like, when the Doctor will just use his intelligence to figure figure out a solution. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I, suppo- I mean, I suppose I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but I suppose that's one of the reasons why, when we finally see how he deals with Shock Eye... Mm-hmm. I mean, do you want to talk about that now? Um, might as well, yeah. So what are your thoughts on it? Without without analysing it too much, it comes across as just cold blood and murder, because yeah. he doesn't he doesn't try to simply get him out of the picture or get him locked up. He just kills him. The alternative of letting him live, countless more will die. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can see. I think it's one of those things where it's it's sort of a bit tricky. I can see the way in which he's killed works in terms of the story it's not as if it's the first course of action the doctor would take i think what makes it i think what makes it unpleasant and i think it's very telling it isn't in robert holmes's novelization of it okay it's when the doctor makes that uh, that that comedic quip you're just desserts yeah like he's just murdered someone through cyanide and then makes that flippant uh Mm. quote yeah that's the part that doesn't sit well yeah I mean, I can understand, you know, he's, the, the doctor's imperiled. You know, he's just been slashed. He's, he's bleeding. 
He's mm. being chased by this uh, this bloodthirsty maniac. Um, there's a way, you know. This is probably the only way he can he can deal with it in the time frame that he has. Yeah. So I can I can I, I can accept it on those grounds, but I think it's when the doctor m- makes light of it. Yeah, because of course he's used cyanide, and yeah. you could argue that he's perhaps shown him mercy by killing him in such an easy way. Uh huh. But yeah, then he delivers that line. <laughs> Just doesn't sit well. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, and of course. He kills Shockeye alone. No one else witnesses it. Uh-huh. Which makes you think, what else could the Doctor get up to when no one's there? Yeah. What else does he get up to? The Sixth Doctor, Unseen Adventures. <laughs> Those where he's a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, don't think, I think he's openly a serial killer. What about all the other Doctors? Do you think after each story, they end up back and just kill everyone? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, this is a lot darker than I realized. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we forgot to mention the bit where the story comes to his senses and frees the Doctor and Perry. Yeah. So he's had a change of heart after... He kind of has this revelation after he sees Chassini um, revert back to our instincts with the blood. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, realising that what the Doctor said in the very first episode was bang on the money. So even the even though the Sixth Doctor was a bit of a killer, he does redeem himself a little bit in my eyes because he um, decides to become a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all's forgiven. <laughs> Excellent. So what you're saying is you can be a mass you can be a mass murderer. Uh, but as long as you decide to be a vegetarian, then uh, yeah. then then all's good. All's forgiven, fully redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, w- I won't mention the cl- uh, I won't mention the uh, the cliche of a famous mass murdering uh, uh, vegetarian in history. But anyway, <laughs> you know who I mean. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not, not you. No, no, it's not you. Don't worry. But you're going to tell them my secret there. <laughs> <laughs> so I put a little poll out on Twitter to see who is the favourite, com- who's the best companion, ever, Jamie or Perry. All oh, right, okay, yes. And overwhelmingly, it was Jamie from the handful of responses we got. Uh, I'm not surprised, if truth be told. What what was the uh, percentage difference? Or what, what was the percentage, rather? Oh, it was 83% for Jamie, 17 for Perry. Oh, right, okay. I mean, I still think Perry's a good companion, but yeah, I think I think it's, you know, Jamie is recognised as being one of the most popular. Yeah. He reminds me of someone in a show I'm watching called Outlander. I mentioned it the other week. Uh-huh. And in it, there's this um, Jacobite Highlander called Jamie. And when I'm watching Outlander, I always think of Jamie from Doctor Who. All oh, right, okay. I wonder if that's deliberate that they've named him Jamie. I know that's what I thought. Based on Jamie. Yeah. Maybe it's an unofficial fan fiction, and it is yeah. Jamie. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Just before we um, sort of like do, do a wrap up and our, our final thoughts on the uh, on the story, I just go through. Some moments in the novelization which I thought were quite good. So it starts off with uh, a description of the space station, 
And I love Robert Holmes's description. He says, At one moment it looked like a giant three-dimensional thumbprint. In the next pers- perspective it resembled a cheap knuckle duster that had been used by Godzilla. <laughs> Which I th- right, okay, that's interesting. And then... Um, there's a bit which I thought was interesting. There's a there's a there's a small section where Jamie's vaguely remembering this moment when the Time Lords um, put the Second Doctor on this mission, mm-hmm. and he's saying that he's struggling to remember. But they'd been, uh, he says, they'd been in a strange garden where the grass was purple and there were flowers as tall as small trees, and all the sunlight streamed into the garden. Somehow there had been a dense wall of mist all around it. Then three men, tall, wearing yellow cloaks with high collars, appeared out the mist. So there's this brief moment when, um, it goes on a little bit after that, but there's this brief moment of um, the second Doctor actually meeting the Time Lords, mm. um, which, I thought was, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, and then towards the very end, Robert Holmes does do this nice sort of wrapping up, where after everything's been resolved and... Both the doc, both doctors and Jamie and um, Perry have left. There's this thing where, um, basically, after a short period, the hacienda is investigated and the police are involved. Uh, but they don't know what happened to the uh, do- uh, Donya Arana, mm-hmm. and why there'd been a massive explosion, and then he just uh, just says. The file eventually went into a cabinet next to one on the unsolved murder of Botcherby Oscar, restaurant manager. So I thought, you know, I thought it was quite nice that Robert yeah. Holmes sort of played, uh, thought it was worthwhile wrapping the yeah. wrapping the story up in that way. Yeah, poor Oscar. Oh, poor Oscar. <laughs> I don't like but, how everyone's just still sat at the tables while he's dying. Yeah, the, the, funny enough, that's what I thought when they were the, the, the must. They're remaining amazingly calm. Their because meals must be bloody darn good. His death goes on for so long. <laughs> and they're still sat there? Yeah, they're still sat there. Callous arseholes. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. But I thought that the way that um, all the other characters, like the, the main ones, Perry in particular, um, I thought the way her reaction was, was written and acted, I thought was quite was quite nice. Mm-hmm. Now, I was just saying, you know, we'll... Would be at the first night to see your uh, definitive Hamlet, mm-hmm. which was I thought was quite touching. So, final thoughts on the story. Um, we'll see what you think about a rating of the episode, Liam. Um, I think it was a very dark episode mm-hmm. with the death um, themes that that were in it. Um, but I'm very glad, in retrospect, that we've had that. It would have been a bit of a dull episode if the tone those aspects down mm-hmm. uh, it was a really enjoyable episode it goes to show that doing an anniversary reunion doesn't have to be all happy and optimistic with nostalgia no that's true I mean well the, the thing with the two doctors is it wasn't an anniversary special it was just following on from the five doctors John Nathan Turner saw Patrick Trout and Jay, uh, Fraser Hines were very keen to come back and, and yeah. just use this as an opportunity to do a multi-doctor story. Uh, and yes, it works. I totally agree with you. I think um, it's a, it is a very dark story, uh, quite bleak. That's what makes it interesting in the same way that it also makes it a bit uncomfortable. I think there are certain things like the stabbing of Oscar, 
which I think are maybe a bit too much for something like Doctor Who. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I think everything else works. Um, so yes, I think it, I think it is a very good s- story. It is enjoyable. It's been amazing that it's taken me, well, taken both of us this long to come back and rewatch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I could quite happily sit b- back down and, and, and watch the two Doctors again in within a relatively short space of time. Um, the, I think probably where the weakness lies, I mean, because I think it's very well written, it, it's very strongly written, um, I think where the, the weakness lies is probably in Peter Moffat's direction. It isn't say it's awful, but I think there are some moments where it is a bit flat, but there is some thought that has gone into there. So, for example, when the episode begins properly, there's a, the, you know, the, there's, a, there's a moment when it opens up in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, before fading into colour because you know that's how the Patrick Troughton era was it was in black and colour so I thought that's a nice touch so there's some thought that's gone into that and the location filming I think is directed quite well yeah um, in terms of a ranking I'm finding it a bit tricky if I'm honest I think I think probably 6 out of 10 yes I think it should definitely go lower than the 5 Doctors yeah, I agree with that because I think the Five Doctors in some. I just have a preference for it. I think it's much more enjoyable. And yeah. there's, there's a lot more going on. That isn't to say that isn't the case with the, the two Doctors. I just find the Five Doctors a much more enjoyable watch. Yeah. So we'll be returning next week with a new podcast, and we'll be revisiting some very particular Doctor Who charity specials. Do we want to reveal what they are now, Liam, or should we just wait? No, we'll we'll leave it at that and leave it as as cryptic as that. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be a well welcomed mystery when we come back. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And um, we are on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can visit cloisterbell.co.uk, and all the links for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are there, and you can give us a like and a follow. And all our previous podcasts are on there, where we've reviewed series 11 of doctor who and some other multi-doctor stories recently uh yes so we've we've uh, reviewed the sirens of time the uh, the three doctors the five doctors and of course uh today the two doctors one thing that we will be doing uh very very soon is going back to look at the big finish audio adventures so very soon we'll be reviewing phantasmagoria so keep an eye out for that mm.